Don't worry, guys. Heidi got this. We trust in Heidi. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. 1 John, chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. We're continuing our series in the letters of John. Uh, And as I like to do in most weeks, I like to do a brief previously on, uh, just to sort of talk about what we did. Now, last week, uh, I was sick, so it wasn't actually last week, and it wasn't actually the week before that, because we did a different service, Uh, so it was the week before that. Uh, So if you don't remember what we did, we talked very uh, much, in fact, more than half the service was dedicated to the concept of dwelling and where God wants to dwell with us. So we talked about the dwelling place of God, that he set up the universe Uh, when he originally created the universe at the very beginning, he set it up to dwell with mankind. uh, And then at the... (laughs) Uh, And then at the end of uh, the third chapter, or so the second chapter, rather, of Genesis, mankind sort of messed that up with their sinfulness. Uh, And so everything that God has done since then has been to reconcile the world back to him so that he can then dwell. And we went all the way to the final chapters of Revelation where it says that the dwelling place of God will be with man and we will be his people and he will be our God with the idea that uh, what God wants at the end of the day is to reconcile uh, with us and to dwell with us. So that's what we did a couple of weeks ago. Now we're now moving here into 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So I invite you to uh, open your Bibles there and read along. And this is what God's Word says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And what I want to point out just very briefly here is that you have this sort of cause and effect thing happening in this particular verse. You see a logical progression where he wants to go. And so you see that uh, uh, the first thing he says that uh, if you are born of God, then, uh, sorry, if you believe, then you are born of God. So he says, if this happens, then this happens. And he builds this structure going through. So he says, if you believe you are born of God, if you are born of God, you love the Father. If you love the Father, you obey his commands. And if you obey his commands, you love others. And the thing is, if even one of those things is taken out, the entire structure collapses. Uh, this is what John is trying to show uh, the people that he's writing this letter to, is that if you take any one of these things out, the entire structure collapses. So you, first off, you have to believe. That's, that's, the, that's the beginning. That is the starting point. Uh, and if you don't start there, then the rest of it is useless. You have to start with belief. After belief, you have to be born of God. Now, being born of God, we'll get a, a little bit later on in this particular sermon, but just so you know what that is, that means being in his will. That means not only believing in him, but then following him, doing as he commands you to do, loving him, doing everything the Bible says you to do to be, it means that you are born of God. If you're born of God, you love the Father. And so part of that belief, part of that being of the Father and being in his will is also uh, loving God, and, and, and this is where it, it's really key. You need to love God more than you love yourself. 
That's difficult for a lot of people, especially in today's society, in the way that we live now, uh, uh, you are told that you are the most important person, you have to self-love, you have to make sure that everything goes right for you, you have to make sure that everything is going your way and you're the most important person. We live in a very self-centric society where we are taught that the most important thing is your happiness and your welfare and your uh, life, and yet the Bible preaches something completely different. It says instead of that, you need to love the Father. He continues that if you love the Father, you will obey His commands. And again, this is something that we're not really ingrained in us to do uh, uh, in today's society. What we look at is instead of saying, oh, well, yeah, I love God, but I, I just want to do my own thing. Yeah, I love God, but do I really need to go to church? Yeah, I love God, but do I really need to tithe like the Bible says? Yeah, I love God, but uh, do I really need to forgive so-and-so? You don't understand what so-and-so did to me uh, 15 years ago on that one night over, over when we were at that office party. They said some pretty mean things. So I love God, but do I really need to forgive them for that? And so we're not really ingrained that loving the Father also means obeying His commandments that we need to actually do what the Bible tells us to do. That's a very sort of antithetical to the way our society runs. Uh, But then what I love is the way that he finishes here in verse 2. He says, if you obey his commandments, one of his commandments, in fact, his second most important one, is that you love others. Now, I I bang on this drum all the time. This is one of my little soapboxes. Uh, If you don't love other people, you're not a Christian. Bam. Oh, now I've got your attention, haven't I? There we go. If you don't love other people, if you don't love others, it means you're not obeying his commands. If you're not obeying his commands, it means you don't love the Father. If you don't love the Father, you're not born of God. If you're not born of God, you don't believe. It's as simple as that. Loving others is not just this like weird thing that we do only on Sundays. It's not this weird thing we do only around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. Loving others is supposed to be a state of being for Christians. Loving others is supposed to be our default state, not loving ourselves. Now, I want to be very clear here. Christ said that you need to love others as you love yourself. And so I'm not saying that you need to sacrifice everything that you are uh, in spite of loving others, but rather loving others should be born out of the fact that you are of Christ, that you are in Christ and that you love God. And that should naturally flow. There are things that we do. There are things of self-sacrifice that we do, but no one wants you to cut off your nose to spite your face. Do you know that expression or is that just a weird Australian thing? No, we know that expression. Some feedback people would be nice. Let's agree with the preacher. I've got 25 slides. I can make them last past the Seahawks game. Don't think I can't. Does this track, does this sort of systematic thinking track to you? Does it make logical sense that you have to, these things follow one another to a natural conclusion? I want this to be the basis of us of the sermon moving forward because I think this is very important for us. That this is not just uh, something that we do in this season. Uh, you know, the the Christmas season. Oh, good lord! We started talking about Christmas in June, but that's a whole nother story. But this is the season where loving others is really pushed to the forefront of society. This is the great season for doing it. This is the great season for helping people. Uh, but what happens in January, and then in February and March, and as the year goes by? It goes from the forefront of our brains more to, uh, 
let's just wait until next Thanksgiving and then we'll start helping again. So I want this to be in the forefront of our brains. Moving on, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. The commandments of God are not an added burden to your life. Uh, A lot of times they're presented like that, but I want to spend just some time uh, following some stuff here, some, some, again, some logical thoughts. Uh, God's love is what gives his people the desire to follow his commandments. That's what we just read in, in the previous verse. And so if you love God and you love God truly with your heart, then following what God wants you to do is actually not a burden. It's something that you do with joy, right? Does that make sense? And so, again, does it make sense? There we go. I like feedback. That love of God means that we do stuff, uh, that we we live our lives to please him. Uh, And I found this particular sentence, I didn't write this sentence, I found it in a commentary, but I liked it so much that I copied it verbatim uh, so that you, you, you understand where I'm coming from. So it says, rightly understood and followed, God's commandment brings believers great joy and freedom, not a sense of oppression. And so, so here's what happens often, is you tell non-Christians that you're a Christian. The first thing, that, oh man, isn't it, isn't it bad living your life with all those rules? Don't you feel trapped having to live your life a certain way? Don't you feel bad that you can't enjoy the certain things that I enjoy? And the reality is that if you love God, you understand that that's actually not the way that it breaks down. That's not the way that Christians live their lives. Me following God's commandments is not a burden because I love God and God says that I need to do this. And so if you truly love God, you will obey his commandments without it being a burden and it will not be a sense of oppression. And the best biblical example I found of this came from Jesus and himself in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Now, most of you know this story because it's often taken a little bit out of context. Uh, but Jesus is in the middle of one of his sermons. He's preaching, he's talking to people, and he says this, uh, and this is Jesus talking, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest. "'Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, "'for I am gentle and lowly in heart, "'and you will find rest for your souls.'" And he ends, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a lot of Christian teaching centered around this passage is both correct and not correct. Uh, And so I want to just get a little bit into the Jewish culture that Jesus is speaking into here for a second. When you hear this sentence, and when you've probably heard this being taught, you would have been told that a yoke was the thing that they put across the back of the donkey that was pulling the carts. Is that what you, have you heard that being preached before? Uh, That's correct, except for the fact that yoke is also the Jewish word for the teachings of the rabbis. Now, this is, is news to a lot of people, so I'm going to break this down. Do I have a... Yeah, here we go. I got it. Essentially, what it is, it's a biblical teaching. It's doctrine. A yoke is the Jewish word for Hebrew doctrine. And so what you would have is you'd have rabbis that would get together in little schools. They would break open a passage of Scripture, and they would read it, and they would say, uh, you are not to work on the Sabbath. And they would sit around, and they would discuss 
what that meant for them. And one rabbi over here would say, well, I think working is anything you do physical labor. And a person over here would say, well, yeah, it's physical labor, but then I also think maybe it's, it's walking too far. Maybe it's doing certain physical, maybe you shouldn't play sports on the Sabbath as well, because while that's not technically work, it is exertion. And, and so these rabbis would get together and they would discuss it. And when they went away from their meeting, they would develop what they would call a yoke. And that yoke would be a specific teaching of a certain scriptural passage. And so when you have Jesus that says, my yoke is easy, he's saying it's actually really easy to follow my interpretation of the Old Testament. It's really easy to follow Jesus's teachings of the Old Testament. He says the entire Testament is broken down into only two commandments, love God and love others. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, that's what he's referring to. He's not talking about a donkey pulling a cart. He's not talking about something really where all the people around him would have understood this because it was a common term in the day. So when Jesus said, come to me all, all you who labor and are heavy laden, some of the rules that people were made to follow were ridiculous. Some of the interpretations of Old Testament law still are ridiculous. There are people in Jerusalem today who on the Sabbath, their rabbi says that it is uh, against the Sabbath. You would be breaking the Sabbath if you were to drive in your car. However, you can drive over, you can get into a motorboat and go over water and cross water on the Sabbath. So you're not allowed to drive in a car, but you're allowed to use a boat on the Sabbath and travel over water. And so there are Orthodox Jews that legitimately grab a bottle of water, put it under the front seat of their car so they don't think they're breaking the rules because they're traveling over water. I'm not making that up. That's an actual thing. Jesus said that, Take, he said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Some of the rules are ridiculous. My parents just got back from a two-week trip to Israel. There is an elevator in one of the hotels that is called the Sabbath elevator. It only runs on the Sabbath and it stops at every single floor because certain rabbis say the act of pushing a button on an elevator is working on the Sabbath. Okay? When Jesus said that this should be easy, when my yoke is easy to understand, it's easy to follow, it's not burdensome. Jesus said simply, very simply, all you have to do is love God and love others. You live your life according to those two commands. If, if you love God, then love of others flows as an extension out of that. If you love God, it changes your heart, it changes your very being so that you love others. Do you, under, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching upon you. Take my interpretation of the Bible from me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is, is saying that he's not abrasive. He's not abrupt. He's not saying, do it my way or you will. Jesus is saying, do it my way. Your life will be better. That's honestly one of the shifts in thinking that we need to get that we need to understand. These rabbis are saying, do it my way or you're going to go to hell. Jesus is saying, do it my way and your life will be the way it was meant to be. See, we were created, you and I, as humans, to have a relationship with the Father. We were created to have a relationship with God where we loved him, he loved us, and that we would be his people and he would be our God. That was how we were created. When Adam and Eve sinned, 
that fractured and changed. And Jesus says it's really easy to come back into that relationship. All you have to do is love God. That's it. Like how complicated do we make Christianity? That, that if you want to be saved, you have to come to the altar and you have to say the sinner's prayer and it has to be, dear Lord, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Please save me. Please save me. No. While those things are good and they're right and coming to the altar and praying is good and right and even repeating the sinner's prayer is good and right if it's done in the right way with the right attitude and the right framework, the simple reality of Scripture is that it's easy. Two commandments, love God, love others. The Apostle Paul, uh, when he was in jail in Philippi, uh, I'm not sure if you remember the story, but Paul and Silas are in jail. They've been whipped. They've been beaten. For some reason, they decide to have a prayer service. This is how I know Paul is a lot holier than I was. If I was beaten, I would spend the, the evening in the corner, you know, sulking. I'm, I'm going to be honest. That's what I would do. I would sulk. Like, you guys might be holier than me, apparently, but I would sulk. I would go into the corner and be like, oh, Jesus, do you really love me? Like, come on, I'm being beaten. Paul and Silas have a worship service. Like, I don't think they had a guitar, but I imagine Silas, like, playing Good, Good Father, and Paul just like, I'm a good, good father. And the Bible says that God sent an earthquake that burst open the doors of the jail. Their shackles fall off, the, the doors burst open, the, the Roman soldier is right there, he's about to kill himself, in case you wondered what that was all about. Uh, in uh, Roman society, uh, the way that their laws worked, that if you were a soldier and you lost a prisoner, uh, you would be put to death for losing that prisoner. Uh, and so the, the, the guard sees like five or six cells burst open, he's assuming that, well, if they just kill me for a single person escaping, I don't know what they're going to do for like six people escaping. It's going to be easier if I just kill myself, get it over with, because I'm not going to be tortured. So he's about to kill himself, and Paul like sticks his head out. I imagine Paul with a sense of humor. I don't know if you imagine Paul the same way. I imagine he has a sense of humor, so I just sort of like imagine his head just popping out. What you doing? Like, do, do you, like I just imagine that. Uh, but, Paul, but Paul says to this guy, well, why are you about to kill? Don't kill yourself. All the prisoners are still here. They haven't escaped. You're not going to get into trouble. But what you need to know is that the God I serve is powerful enough to send the earthquake, to pop open the doors, for my chains to fall off, so that you would know that he is God, and the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And do you know what Paul responds? Make sure you go to church every week. Make sure you tithe. Make sure you know when to raise your hands during the church service. Make sure you know what songs are the songbooks, which ones we clap on, like which are the choruses we clap to, because you don't do it on all of them. You have to do them on very specific ones, otherwise everyone turns around and looks at you. Make sure that the lyrics are up on the screen and make sure that no one messes up. Make sure that the, the, the big things don't feed back and make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure. He says, believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. We make it more complicated than we need to. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, guys, this isn't complicated. He says, this isn't difficult. Love God, love others. Verse 4. That's right, we've still got eight verses to go. Told you I could take you here till the Seahawks game, but no one was saying amen. <laughs> For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our 
faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We need to have an attitude of victory. Jesus has already done it. He's already overcome the world. He's already uh, defeated the forces of Satan, sin, and death. It's done. It's over. We don't have to live our lives in defeat. Do you know those miserable Christians? Like, have you met them? I've met them. You know, the ones that come in like, we love Jesus. Yes, we have victory, but oh, oh. You know those Christians? You don't have to live like that. You can live in victory. You can live like you, are, you believe in the one that has overcome the world because he already has. It's a, it's a simple thing, but, but I honestly think that the church could deal with a lot of problems if we started living uh, in an attitude of victory versus an attitude of defeat. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Water, blood, Spirit equals truth. The water is the water baptism that he faced at John the Baptist, but it's more than just the act of baptism. It was what happened at the baptism that matters. The fact that the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove and the voice of God the Father was heard that said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the water is. The blood is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We've talked in the past a lot about the Old Testament sacrificial system, so I won't go into it too much in detail today except to say that everything in the Old Testament revolved around blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and we know that in Jesus Christ, death on the cross he was the final sacrifice in blood for the sins of the entire world and then finally the spirit of god rested in christ on christ and then the the book of romans says that it is the spirit of god that raised christ from the dead and all of these things equals to the truth that john is testifying to this is what's so sort of unique about this particular book. All the other epistles that Paul wrote, he wasn't actually present with Jesus during the times of these miracles. John was. He was the one that wrote the Gospel of John. He was the one that the Gospel of John calls the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was the one that stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. He was witness to all of these things. And so his testimony carries weight because it was an eyewitness testimony. If you're even talking today's court of law, someone who was there and says, this is what I saw, is more trustworthy than, say, your aunt's second cousin twice removed on your brother's side through cousin Jim, who heard from a friend that this is what happened. John was there, an eyewitness testimony to the ministry of Jesus. He was there when the Holy Spirit descended. He was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. He was there when Jesus cleansed the lepers. He was there when Jesus Christ was crucified, and he was there when he was raised from the dead. He was there when Christ ascended into heaven. This is the weight of his testimony. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning the Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In the strongest possible terms, John claims divine authorship for his teaching is not merely his testimony, it is God's. It's not just John's eyewitness testimony, which alone would be powerful enough, it's also the testimony of God himself. This is what God said. This is what God did. This is what God wants. That last phrase has the Son. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Whoever has the Son has life. Goes back to the original thought. You need to believe. You need to be born of God. You need to have faith in God. You need to obey God's commandments. And God's commandments is that you love others. If you have the Son, all of that is born out in your life. If none of that is born out in your life, you don't have the Son. You don't build a congregation. You don't get people to fill the pews by telling them that this is a binary state. You're either saved or you're not. There's no middle ground. But I'm going to tell you that. You're either saved or you're not. There's no middle ground. It's like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. Some people, the bulbs are burnt out, but that's another story. If you love God, Are you born in God? And how is that played out in your life? I'm going to pray in just a minute, but I want you just to reflect on this. How is it played out in your life? I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm exceptionally proud of our congregation here, of our family here, because I see this on a weekly basis. So this is not a chastisement of me saying you need to get better. I mean, you do have to get better, but that's another story. We do this, and I think we do it well, but we can always do it better. You can do it better by signing up for a carnival booth at the end of the service. <laughs> service to others. Again, it's not, it's not me yelling, it's not me harping at you, it's not me, you know, do better, do better, do better. You can do better, but you do better because you love God and you want to serve God. This is, this is my philosophy when it comes to anything, from the preaching to the songs that we sing to the service. We do the absolute best that we possibly can because our God is worth it. Someone walks through the door and they see, forgive me, a, a crappy put-together service. They'll say, man, is that all their God is worth? I, I don't want that ever. I want people to know how much I value my God because my God has saved me. And that means giving him the absolute best that we can possibly give him. That's why everything that we do, we try and do with the absolute best we can. It's not to elevate ourselves. It's not to make us feel good. It's not even because Carol's going to yell at me if I don't. It's because God's worth it, amen? So as we leave this place, let's go out with this, this idea in our head. Let it capture you. Let it burn in your thoughts. Let it light a fire in your belly. How can I serve God better? How can I love others better? Because if, if I believe in God, if I have faith in the Son, 
if I've then been born of God and I believe in the Father, then I will follow his commandments and his commandments is simple. Love him and love others. Let's pray.